0: Namo Tassa bhagavato, bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato. Samma Sambuddhasa Udham Saranam Gacchami Dhammam Saranam Gacchami Sangam Saranam Gacchami Dutiyambhyam Udham Saranam Gacchami Dutyampi damam saranam gachami. Dutyampi sangam saranam gachami. Satyampi budam saranam gachami. Tatiampi damam saranam saranam gachami. Tatiampi, Sangam, Saranam, Kachami, Parati Pata, sikapadam are Ammani, Sika, Padam, Samadiyami, Sika, Padam, Samadiyami, Brahmacharya Viramani Sika Padam Samadhyami Mosavada Viramani sika Padam Samadhyami Sura Meraya Majava where am I meet? Sita Samadhiyami. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.
1: I hope that you're all doing well. On the uh, as we get to the end of our third day together, um, I used to say that um, I, I I hope that you're doing well, but I I don't I hope I don't necessarily hope that things. Go the, are going the way that you want them to go. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in part because the, the path is simply so mysterious and unpredictable and um, our wants sometimes get in the way because uh, from where we sit now, we just can't see how the path would possibly unfold. The, so much of it is before us. This is, I think, one of the the big lessons of the Dharma is that uh, the path is going to keep cal- recalibrating our wants, in a sense, and also that some part of us is going to f- probably fight against that. I think I think to some degree my my uh, talk tonight explores that idea, though I, I don't think I've stated it explicitly in the itself. I think that um, that way of uh, thinking and relating to the path is is in there. And I also wanted to say that I, I don't see myself in any way an expert or an authority on uh, compassion. If if uh, anything. Uh, and I think I said something along these lines on our first night together during the opening. Um, I'm aware that so much of my practice has revolved around insight meditation and also meta practice. Um, and I'm also aware through, particularly through insight practice, that uh, there are so many ways in my own life that I'm very self-focused um, and I'm I'm continuing to see how subtle this is and even sometimes when I think I'm not um, relating to myself or others in this way there are these very uh, there's this, this sort of minutia of um, Me seeking for the sake of me, um, and sometimes there 's fear there, and sometimes there 's greed there, and uh, sometimes it 's sort of a universal kind of grasping that just seems to be on autopilot um, and 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 i 'm comfortable saying that as my practice develops and as years go by and as life experiences accumulate. Um, I'm also finding myself in a significant reevaluation of what this path is um, and what is important to emphasize in the Dharma and uh, what is important to work on uh, within myself as a person, as a teacher, um, as a person who in certain cases occupies a leadership position, and that it does uh, it does affect uh, the things I think about, and, and the ways I spend my time, and the things that I read, and in my own meditation practice. And so I'm really grateful for that. Um, and there's, there's, though I I feel new to some of this material. I see in the uh, self-selecting in um, something that I'm appreciating that I feel like the Dharma has already. Um, offered me that there's some kind of a a conscious intention and, and I think and hope that that message uh, is also uh, in tonight's talk and then uh, the third thing I wanted to eventually I'll give a talk <laughs> the, 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 the third thing that comes to mind is that um, well, firstly, that I appreciated Booker's talk and her practice that was um, so experiential, and specifically that I, that I agree with Booker's position that compassion is exemplified in connection and uh, uh, relationally. Uh, even though we might uh, sit, uh quietly uh, and uh, even sometimes alone maybe at home and and do the kinds of practices where teaching of course Booker's practice was 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 more dynamic and 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 connective but uh though we might sometimes for example how I taught yesterday explore this practice if you will within our own mind that uh, the heart of it is exemplified and uh uh, carried out uh, as connection and in, in, in relationship, I think, and and I, I think and hope that that uh, theme is is in my talk for tonight too. I might be saying all this in case I I don't do that. You can know that I tried. <laughs> So the first question that that comes up for me is, uh, what is the purpose of insight? Insight as a realization, but also what is the purpose of insight meditation? And I could say just as easily, what is the purpose of this path we're on? And we may very well define this path differently, and, and I think that would be appropriate and So when I use that uh, term or frame, I use it uh, more so generally to refer to the Buddhist path, to refer to meditation practice, the development of sila or integrity or ethics, the development of wisdom. And for me, there are two possible uh, answers to that question, and I don't think that they will... um, at all be uh, new to you or or a surprise in any way. Uh, The first is to be free of suffering, to be free of Dukkha. And we could say that this represents the Arahant ideal, which is a, if not the primary archetype in in Theravada or Hinayana Buddhism, this uh, idea, that we as an individual can wake up uh, through uh, certain kinds of understandings, uh, generally that accumulate over time, and they culminate with uh, specific kinds of experiences and insights that uh, free us from the confusion that creates human distress. Uh, And we are the beneficiaries of that, we suffer less. And the other possible outcome of this path is that we are able to contribute to the world in ways that alleviate pain and suffering for other people. And uh, this, I think, requires both wisdom and compassion. And we could say that this notion, that this, uh, this great possibility represents the Bodhisattva ideal, which is one of, if not the core, archetype of the Mahayana tradition, the tradition that uh, this center is most rooted in where we are this weekend. Though the Hinayana and Mahayana are associated with these different archetypes, uh, both the Arhant and the bodhisattva. In my view, these are uh, points of emphasis within these uh, different traditions. And I believe that the Dharma, when both um, expressed most authentically and uh, when it's in, when it's most uh, well developed, manifests as both wisdom and compassion, uh, regardless of tradition. So, I want to give a couple examples of um, compassion uh, in the language of both the. Theravada and the Mahayana tradition Uh, and uh, a brief story here Um, there was a time uh, early in the dissemination of the the Buddha's teachings where uh, the Buddha had uh, given a considerable amount of time in his life to meditation practice and he had as the tale goes sat under the um, bodhi tree and had woken up and uh, had accumulated the knowledge that gives us the meditation practices and the teachings that we have today and with some hesitation and reservation eventually began to to teach others and at a certain point there were said to be 60 arahants there were 60 people who had completely woken up uh, Arguably, at the level of Siddhartha uh, Gotama, who's the person, the historical person that we're referencing often when we say the Buddha, even though there were many, many Buddhas over time, and uh, at a at a certain point, the the Buddha had this idea that that these folks should should go off and leave their their village and 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 start teaching and. He, he said to them, he gathered uh, this group of 60 awakened practitioners, and he said, uh, go forth, bhikkhus, um, bhikkhus, uh, honorific term for uh, folks wearing robes who have, have renounced um, the worldly life. Go forth, bhikkhus, for the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, Out of compassion for the world, for the good, benefit, and happiness of all beings. So just a reminder, this is not from the Mahayana. This is from the Hinayana, the Theravada. And the Buddha is charging um, those who he is setting forth to teach the Dharma to do so out of and for the cultivation of compassion. In the Mahayana uh, tradition, a tradition that I have less experience in, um, though I, when I was leaving the house the other day, I grabbed a, a, a Mahayana text, and the same text was when I got here. It was on my table in my room, so I figured, well, I better pay attention to that that book. And uh, maybe there are some others around the building, maybe you've seen them, the 37 practices of uh, bodhisattvas, and, and these are slogans for reflection that would, would guide the, uh, the practice life of a, of a practitioner. So the, the first of the 37 uh, practices of bodhisattvas is written this way. Having gained this rare ship of freedom and fortune, uh, this, this vessel of a human body and this precious human birth, having gained this rare ship of freedom and fortune, hear, think, and meditate unwaveringly night and day in order to free yourselves and all others from the ocean of cyclic existence from the ocean of samsara, from the reality or truth of suffering. This is the practice of bodhisattvas. And in the sixth practice of bodhisattvas, and here I'm paraphrasing. When others are suffering, what use is your own
0: happiness?
1: Just that question we could, we could really work with for, um, for some time uh, or until it's, it's full maturation, whatever that would take. When others are suffering, what use is your own happiness? Therefore, to free, limitless beings, develop the altruistic intention. This is the practice of bodhisattvas. There's a, a, a place in the Zen liturgy, and maybe in the, the Tibetan liturgy too, um, where, and I would have to paraphrase, where it says, um, beings are numberless. Beings are numberless, I vow to save all of them. I vow to save all of them. Which is such an impossibility that it functions like a koan and it throws the mind into this place of non-concept. Like how in and hopefully in 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 the in the disrupting of the uh the concepts of thinking mind, something else comes forward. And we just we connect with the interest of wanting to be that helpful, right? Um, You might remember um, when I was speaking yesterday that I that that I referred to a place in the Pali Canon where um, the Buddha was described at a certain place as as being a great helper. He had become a great helper. So, in the in the Vasudhi Maga now in in our tradition in the, in the Theravada or Hinayana tradition, um, there is a section in the in the in the Maga is a uh, it's a it's a later commentary and uh, a collection of, of meditation instructions that are found uh, throughout the the Pali Canon, and there's a section on the four uh, Brahma Viharas, which Booker also gave, a, I thought, a really good introduction to today. And um, in in this part of the text, the, the Buddha tells us how to practice uh, metta and compassion. And he says to first, well, he says to first take a bath and get clean. So hopefully... <laughs> um, and uh he then says to reflect on the dangers of not cultivating meta reflect on the dangers of not cultivating compassion um and I think without saying it so explicitly um and I don't know if this is true for for, for Booker but sometimes like when I hear um the the compassion teachings being taught and when I am giving them myself I I feel uh, between like underneath the words I'm saying let's be clear about the danger of not cultivating compassion Mm -hmm. right and when I hear it like when I was listening to Booker earlier I'm thinking oh if we don't cultivate compassion the change we seek is not going to happen, right? And individual and collective and systemic pain is going to go on unending, right? So I want to share a few thoughts um, that I think could be dangers of not cultivating compassion. And and just to be clear, that this short list doesn't come from any any text so Um, one danger might be that uh, other beings humans and and maybe even non-human beings feel isolated and alone and unprotected another possible danger of not cultivating compassion is that fear and danger um, I'm sorry, that fear and anger uh, might increase in the world. A third danger is that we might lack the beneficial and pleasant changes in brain chemistry that coincide with compassion. It's sort of an unusual for teaching for me, and you'll see later um, that I I, I, um, I try to follow up on that with some uh, some science, which is not uh, typically not of interest to me, and, and often not a way that I I teach either. A fourth danger of not cultivating compassion is that wisdom and freedom are compromised within ourselves and others. And uh, lastly, that close connections are disrupted or never begun. Close connections are disrupted or never begun. So we can see in another passage from the Pali Canon what reads as almost a response to the dangers of not developing compassion. In two verses, uh, two consecutive verses of the Dhammapada we see the interrelationship between wisdom and compassion and also we see the relationship between self-liberation in the actualization of freedom for all beings. In one phrase, it is written, one who, while themself seeking happiness, does not oppress with violence other beings who also desire happiness, will find happiness hereafter. So if we are seeking happiness in our life, central, to us achieving that, is that we don't oppress with violence other people. And some people don't identify with violence based on their interpretation of that word. I might challenge that view and argue that we are all, in ways, prone to violence. So we could just put in there anger or um, inducing fear, right? So the idea is that as we we move away from the creation of those mind states and the actions connected to them, our own goals for happiness and well-being are more likely, okay? In the inverse, of course, one who, also from the Dhammapada, one who, while themselves seeking happiness, does not, oh, did I do the same thing twice? I may have read the second one first. I'll just go back. The first stanza is one who, while themselves seeking happiness, oppresses with violence other beings who also desire happiness, they will not attain happiness thereafter. Second stanza, one who while themselves seeking happiness does not oppress with violence other beings who also desire happiness will find happiness thereafter. So for me, these kinds of uh, stanzas in the Dhammapada express the kind of compassionate, compassionate, um, well wishes of an enlightened mind what i want to emphasize here is that this is a mind not caught in perseverating thoughts of self me i at which by the way even though yesterday i said it's totally fine that we're thinking and and it is um and and partly um because the energy of that kind of self-referential thinking has to burn itself out and it does on occasion burn itself out and when it does when there's not so much self-referential thinking there's not so much me or i at this stage in our practice we have a vested interest in the welfare of others it's much it's much easier right so uh, prior to this there's what what i like to just call human confusion it's not it's not really anyone's fault even though we can take uh, interest in and responsibility for understanding how this works personally communally socially culturally it's so dynamic, it's, it's so complex, it's so, um, it's so historical, it's so conditioned um, that it's hard to point at one, uh, one place of fault, right? So we, this is an important teaching so that we can, we can move away from self-blame and, and, and capture the interest and curiosity and altruistic motivation. And begin to do the kind of exploration and practice that leads to insight, that leads to well being, that leads to compassion. So, the, the most simple way to think about this human confusion is, um, or rather, what this human confusion is, is the view that getting what we want means always focusing on ourselves. That's the human confusion. That getting what we want means always focusing on ourselves. And the Dharma calls this delusion. This is a deluded view. Likewise, and I think this is important because uh, of our, uh, of our, um, our tradition, if for those of us who identify with the Theravada, there is the notion sometimes supported by narrow translations of Theravada doctrine that dispassion for the world will result in personal freedom. In fact, we're told that it will. That dispassion for the world will result in personal freedom. And so, therefore, compassion runs the risk of being a kind of side project that derails one's own freedom. So something that I really like about the Mahayana is that it, it, in, it inverts that and says simply that a clear path to awakening is the service of other beings and the development of compassion. It's a really different view. So despite this, this Theravada emphasis on, on dispassion and self-awakening, um, I think that if what we want to experience is beneficial in liberated mind states care for others will directly support that compassion is part of the path to personal wholeness health spiritual fulfillment personal freedom while wisdom sees clearly that others' well being is part of the formation of a world in which we ourselves are more capable of achieving this, it's easy to forget that, particularly at times of acute suffering. Um, particularly given the ignorance of certain social locations. So some of us might have to work a little bit harder. Um, there might be a particular kind of inquiry or study or question asking or putting ourselves in a new and uncomfortable learning environments to really come in contact with the truth of this. Otherwise we stay deluded by our, our personal Uh, and social vantage point and maybe even by our alliance with the Theravada. Okay, so now we're moving on to Darwin who doesn't usually show up in conversations of compassion. Nor do I have a whole lot of interest in, however, he said something very, very interesting that doesn't uh, that didn't really make its way into a lot of the science books and for which he is largely not identified with. And this has sometimes been called the sympathy hypothesis. Is there anyone familiar with the sympathy hypothesis? Darwin said, quote, those communities which included the greatest number of the most sympathetic members would flourish best. That's amazing. Those communities which included the greatest number of the most sympathetic members would flourish the best this is not a scramble for your food so that you don't starve mentality this is not a get and hold the power mentality we know those mentalities don't create thriving sustainable safe growthful communities so um according to uh modern thinker Paul Ekman, uh, what Darwin called sympathy, in the words of Ekman, today would be termed empathy, altruism, or compassion. So this uh, this sentiment is uh, inherent in my own interest in uh, exploring and creating what I'm calling communities of care, where... Any particular kind of community can become an example to other communities and how together, come together, as we have more of these kinds of communities, um, they can create a kind of care that embodies models and, and, and protects the well-being of all people. So what Darwin was saying was that sympathy or compassion is an imperative for healthy communities and that there is a biological basis for it even though we don't always see evidence of the of it in the world around us and i think that's what's really interesting and that there's a question here like if there is actually a biological imperative why don't we see more of it right so this is a I think this is a useful question. Why don't we see more of it? If this is true, if this is a biological imperative, then Buddhist practices that cultivate compassion stand a really good chance of working. Because we would arguably be nurturing an innate potential. Personally, I'm really open to the idea of something being innate, even though it's not widespread enough yet in our culture. One additional point that I'd like to make is that compassion can be cultivated not only through meditation practices, but by choosing to put ourselves in proximity to suffering where others might benefit from or rely on our care. Uh, This is a choice we can make. We might even come to see it as an opportunity that we can find. Perhaps it's something that we seek out. We can also read, we can study, Uh, we can learn about the ways that people who are different from us suffer, perhaps in ways that we do not ourselves suffer. When we have the opportunity for friendship with others whose social location or life path in any way differs from us and they volunteer to share with us something about their life path or their suffering, we can listen. And more than that, we can reflect on the implications of their suffering and what we can do about it from the places we occupy in the world and within our own communities. This might be some kind of a vision for a contemplative uh, wisdom that doesn't necessarily rely strictly on ancient Buddhist practices, but that brings Buddhist practices in conversation uh, with other modes of learning and uh, the prevalence of social realities that are um, disrupting uh, universal harmony. Clinician Paul Gilbert writes, we need compassion because life is hard. It's it's hardly arguable. We need compassion because life is hard. We are all susceptible to diseases and injuries. Every one of us has a lifespan that had a start and will have an end. Just like you, I am vulnerable to disease. Just like you, I could have a blood test tomorrow that says my life is going to end. You hear the Dharma in this, right? Just like you, I could hear that my son has been killed in a car crash. Because these things can happen to any one of us at any time, we're all in this together. No one, no one escapes. And the more we work together, the more we can make this journey of suffering bearable. The Buddhist tradition puts it this way. Just like me, you want to be happy. Just like me, you want to be free of suffering. That recognition of common fear and yearning is the basis of compassion. But compassion isn't always easy. I take a fairly simple general view of compassion, which is that it is a sensitivity to the it is a sensitivity to suffering with a commitment to try to alleviate and prevent that suffering. Life experiences, this is the same passage. Life experiences can also diminish our ability to give and receive compassion, but we can break those loops. We can change our conditioning, the Dharma teaches us. We can break those loops by becoming aware of our own awareness. We can then begin to deliberately cultivate compassion by learning to cultivate compassionate attention, compassionate thinking, compassionate feeling, and compassionate behavior. We learn to be open to suffering in others as well as to suffering in ourselves. And then we act to alleviate suffering. So I suggested that there might be a biological basis of compassion and I said at the beginning of the talk that and this is not usually um, the way I uh, approach the uh, the Dharma and it's, um, it's a way of working and thinking that I'm, I'm not typically inclined toward or good at or it doesn't feel natural to me. Um, and I've uh, developed some concerns around certain aspects of the secular mindfulness movement. But there's, for me, some very interesting writing and, and research uh, being done in the area of compassion that, that I feel that's really compelling to me. And so I wanna, I wanna share a little bit of that with you. Um, so in, in doing that, um, I'm reminded of one uh, point in Booker's talk last night where she mentioned how the heart could open to compassion. And I made a note of this in my notebook. And I went back to my room and I was thinking um, that to, to, to point out or emphasize that the heart can open uh, suggests also that the heart is not always open, of course. Um, and simply said, compassion is not always present. And we, we know that. Um. So, if there were a biological basis of compassion, uh, this would suggest an evolutionary purpose, right? So we could we could maybe even in, in build an argument that pushes compassion way to the front of our agenda as those interested in personal liberation and a kind of social harmony or social freedom. Uh, some research has shown that if we feel compassion our heart rate slows down, and uh, we secrete uh, the bonding hormone oxytocin, and regions of the brain linked to empathy, caretaking, caregiving, and feelings of pleasure light up in that the result of these accumulatively um, make us wanting to move toward other people, to be with other people. These same phenomena of empathy, care for other, care for others, and pleasure are also the indicators that tanha is decreased and dukkha is fading to the background. These mind states foreshadow the awakened mind. These mind states uh, are often uh, equivalent to what we call the awakened mind. So though I don't read a lot of science, these ideas and perhaps this data, some of which is coming out of really good research, um, convinces me further that compassion is innate and capable of being cultivated. And it does raise my confidence in the practices that we're doing. it also suggests whether it was the Buddha or whoever the other folks were thousands of years ago who were teaching this stuff were remarkable human beings and um, Still strikes me as remarkably uh, refreshing in a way that there are people who spent their whole life advocating on behalf of something like wisdom or compassion. Like that—that's what people did. That was a career path, right? That's how people lived their life. And there are scientists now that are doing the same thing. There are. um, activists doing the same thing. So there's one study done at Princeton University where uh, subjects contemplated harm being done to others and the same networks in the brain lit up that lit up when mothers saw images of their own uh, babies suggesting the same neurological activity between the kind of instinctual care that one would give to offspring um, and um, others we don't know who are being harmed. This suggests counter to much of evolutionary science that compassion isn't a rare and kind of lucky phenomena but rather, again, may very well be an innate human response. Again, so why don't we see more of it? The Dharma has a theory for this, which is that the three root poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion function to block the arising of compassion. Mm-hmm. Yet there's another study that supports my earlier claim that compassion benefits ourselves, and that's okay, that's good. That's good news, actually, right? Um, In this disqualifies, in a sense, the learned view that seeking pleasure, which is greed, is the best way to guarantee our unhappiness. So in this study uh, done at Emory University, Uh, people's brain activity was recorded when they were given the chance to help someone, to do something uh, that someone else needed or benefited from. While helping others, the part of the brain that showed activity was the same part activated by a variety of other pleasurable experiences. So what we see in this is that what the brain experiences from things like generosity and compassion are equivalent to a lot of the other pleasurable activities that we seek in our life but we don't tend to run around like always looking for the the next way to be generous or kind or compassionate he's like hey sally what are you doing today oh man i'm just sitting on my couch trying to think about i'm trying to get like five people i can be super generous today you got any ideas (laughs) has anyone been super generous to fred lately Right? And it's like, that's not, we don't think that way, right? So what's important to point out, I think, is that if we learn to focus on the type of pleasure that comes from generosity and compassion, we negate many of the views that underlie selfishness and greed. we are learning that there are altruistic ways of feeling good so we don't we don't do more of these activities because a teacher or a textbook or a data from a research project told us it was beneficial we do it because we have a direct experience of the truth of that furthermore Because of this, we are weakening the underlying conditions that support tanha, directly countering the causes of dukkha. This reveals one of the laws of Dharma, that in the absence of dukkha, the mind is more prone to insight because with grasping abated, the hindrances are less likely to arise. So in a sense, there's just less evidence to support self-generating, self-seeking, selfish behavior. It just doesn't make a lot of sense, most of the time, sometimes necessary. But there's not a strong body of knowledge to support it, other than the concepts we've inherited. before coming to Wonderwell I stopped um, in my my town my um, partner and I had the opportunity to um, uh, take ownership of a home a very old home that was built in 1776 and uh, it needs a lot of work and we have friends over there um, carpenters are doing work and uh, I was uh, I was just answering some questions that they had and um, when I was leaving I was standing with, with, with two folks and one of them said um, do you have any plans for that old island that's in the garage and there had been in the kitchen a kitchen island and we had taken it out and stored it in, in, the, in the garage and you know, I told him at one point. I said, "Don't throw it in the dumpster; just put it in the garage." Because the the New England carpenter and me, and you know, I wanted to. I don't want to throw anything away. Mm-hmm. I want to. I want to find a use for everything. And um, uh, and I'm starting to get a lot of my tools out from when I used to be a be a carpenter. And I'm envisioning this this old garage as a place where I can can uh, do handwork again. And I figured, well, it'll just you know, I'll make a table, or I can store stuff on it, or whatever. And I said so he asked me and I said, Well, I, I don't know, I was just thinking I'd maybe leave it in the garage and you know, put my tools in there and it'd be like a workspace or something and and then I said, Why? And he said, Oh, I was just I was just asking for a friend who might who might need an island and I said, Huh. So let me let me think about that and um and he kinda of looked at the other person that was standing with us and I said, Who are you talking about? and he was asking for the other guy that was, that was standing there. And I, a very, it happened very, very fast and I think I was able to track it because it's so familiar to me. I felt this sense of like, you can't have my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was a little bit more detailed than that. It was like, there, there could be a really good use for this that will benefit me and I could give this thing away but then there could be a time when I resent giving it away because I just I won't have it and there will have been its use would have revealed itself and then maybe I have to buy the thing or I have to build the thing and that will take time or that will take money and there's there's this kind of justification and it's quite logical, and, uh, and it has a, con- like I can feel the mind and body kind of tightening. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's like this, it's like. <laughs> 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 and I had no idea if this thing was ever gonna get used or not, I had no idea. And I said, "Well, let me think about it." And 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 already the dharma wheels were turning. Like even as I said that, I was like, "I want." It was, it was a simple question: I "Was I like, am I going to give this to him?" And I didn't in that moment. And I walked away. And I said, "I'm going to think about it." I said, "I said I'm going to kind of map out the garage and try to figure out like how much storage I need and how many tools I have." And I thought that would be a very practical way, almost. You know, I could almost turn it into an arithmetic problem and just see if the thing will fit in the garage once I get my tools in there. And if it doesn't fit, someone else can have it, right? And I'm happy to say that I went down into the basement and I had other things that I needed to do. And this discernment became really interesting and really important. And the the Dharma... On this day, it just won it, it and i and i and I just decided that it really didn 't matter if it had a use for me um, and part of the reason was after the one person indicated that he was asking for the other person who was standing right next to us, he said to me he said he said you know i 'm living in this really small um this this tiny one room uh studio above." above my brother's garage and there's just this little tiny counter space and if I just had a little bit more counter space it would be a game changer and I remembered um, it wasn't that long ago I remembered living in this tiny one room space above a wood shop with a little wood burning stove no, no, sto- no actual stove to cook on but a plug-in um, cooktop that would, was really used for heating things not cooking um, And I just and, and, and you know again we make assumptions sometimes and I don't I don't totally you know I don't know much about this person's living situation. But I had this sense that this person really needed it and would really appreciate it. And that's what came through, you know, fortunately. And it was a little bit cognitive, which is okay, but I had this sense like I think it would feel really good. I bet you that it would be really good for me to give up this thing, right? And I bet it would be really good for them to have it. And I turned around and I walked up back up to where they were. And I said, I said, I, I said, you should have the, you should have the kitchen island. And he said, really? And I said, yeah, I really want you to have it. Um, and he said, well, why don't you think about it? And I said, I thought about it. I really want you to have it. You know, because it was only like five minutes later. <laughs> and, um, but before I had said that to him, I went in, I kind of checked it out, you know, and I said, well, let's go look at it. He said, there's a couple of things I noticed. And I told him, he said, there's a drawer that's stuck a little bit and the top piece is a little bit loose. But if you stick a screw in there and like, you know, raise that, everything will be fine. And he said, he said, you know, he said, I really appreciate it. He said the color of the, the color that it's painted is the same color of the walls in my apartment. Mm-hmm. He said, it's going to be great, you know. And I was driving. I left, and I was driving down the road, coming here. And I felt a kind of a lightness. I felt like a gladdening of the heart. I felt happy. Right. Um, and all I had to do was give something up. And and offer something to somebody that they needed. Uh, it wasn't really a matter of alleviating pain, but so what was it? Kindness was it? Compassion was it? Was it Donna? was it generosity? Maybe some kind of combination. They, you know, they start to merge at some point. Um, but it's really useful to look for that valid cognition. What does the mind and body feel like? And that experience, which is hard to convey that I had when I was driving down the road, was very different than the kind of like, this is my stuff. Is a very, a very, very different feeling. So, in closing, I I just, if I haven't done it already, and I I think I alluded to it, I wanna wanna say something about wisdom and compassion together. Um, And and I I wanna share with you something a student said on on a Skype session um, the week before last. He said, he said to me, he said, it was kind of like a statement here, sort of figured it out. He said, you know, Chris, he said, compassion comes from humility mm-hmm. not self selflessness he said so and i wrote it down and i said can i use that in my dharma talk?" Mm-hmm. and i went and i was thinking about it and wisdom which is revealed in anatta not self in which reveals anatta is literally selfless Wisdom understands the not-self nature of phenomena, that conditioned things are not permanent and independent, and that mind is more prone to selfless behavior. We become less interested in taking and keeping things for ourselves solely for the purpose of possession, whether material or in the form of feel-good sensations. The mind can naturally can more naturally open to compassionate thoughts and feelings. A little while later in the conversation, the student said, when you are selfless, you are probably not very attached. It was like a revelation. So when you're selfless, you're probably not very attached. Attached, as it's used in Buddhism, is always self-protective or self-generating. So to be unattached opens a space in which different mind states can arise, and one of which is compassion. Interestingly, I think this also points to the relationship between compassion and ethics, into the question as to whether compassion as to whether compassionate thoughts or feelings lead to altruistic actions. And I think this came up in our Q and A this morning. I think maybe, um, I think maybe Rachel had alluded to this at least, if, if not explicitly. Social psychologist Daniel Bateson describes a developmental milestone for humans consistent with the Buddhist teachings. Bateson claims that there are times that when we encounter people in need or in distress that we try to imagine, let me say that again, excuse me, there are times that when we encounter people in need or in distress that we try to imagine what their experience is like. This perspective taken goes beyond our learned and conditioned view of things. Bateson explains that this is, quote, not only one of the most human of capacities, it is one of the most important aspects of our ability to make moral judgments and fulfill the social contract. When we take others' perspective, we feel an empathic state of concern and are motivated to address that person's needs and enhance that person's welfare sometimes even at our own expense. Bateson's experiment found two important things that highlight our compassionate nature. One is that people chose to, this is specific, people chose to accept a shock for others after learning they had shock trauma as a child. And two, that people chose to act compassionately even when anonymous, with no chance of personal gain or recognition. Buddha Gosha, who compiled the Vasudhi manga, which I referred to earlier, said, when, when there is suffering in others, it causes good people's hearts to be moved. Thus, it is compassion. Or, alternatively, it combats others' suffering and demolishes it. Thus, it is compassion. Or, alternatively, it is scattered upon those who suffer or extended to them by pervasion, thus it is compassion. And uh, author Chinua Achebe, who I know from When Things Fall Apart, wrote in The Antills of the Savannah, pointing towards something maybe even beyond compassion. While we do our good works, let us not forget that the real solution lies in a world in which charity will have become unnecessary.